Are the, um, am I allowed to quote Duterte's, um, you know, when he says, uh, fuck the Pope or oh, anything? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Are rule? That's, that's absolutely perfect. Yeah. Hello, welcome to Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. What comes next? There's a lot of talk today about a supposed global wave of far-right authoritarian populism. Putin, Orban, Erdogan, Duterte, Trump, now Bolsonaro, supposedly these make up some sort of nationalist international. But this is a sort of self-aggrandizing statement made by opportunists. Does anything actually unite these figures? It might seem like a global wave now, but as we learned speaking to today's guest, Nicole Carato, it's only because these figures are appearing in the global core that suddenly people are paying attention. They've been a fixture of the global periphery and semi-periphery for quite a long time. So instead, we reckon we should try to understand the specific national contexts that give birth to such phenomena before we go around asserting some general worldwide tendency. So that's what we're doing today. We're speaking to Philippine academic Nicole Curato about Rodrigo Duterte's rise, his support, and his rule so far. And then we're venturing some comparisons. All right, welcome to Alpha Bunga Bunga. I'm Alex Hochuli. I'm in Sao Paulo. Uh, joining us today are regular Alpha Bunga Bunga producers and co-hosts, Ben Fogel, who's in New York, Phil Cunliffe, who's in Canterbury. And we're recording this quite early in the morning because we're talking to Nicole Corato, who's in Canberra. Um, welcome, Nicole. Uh, Nicole has conducted research in the Philippines for five years, is Filipino herself, uh, and observed the election uh, in 2016 in the Philippines and talked to uh, Duterte supporters there. Now she's based in Canberra, where it's late at night. Hi, Nicole. How's it going? Hi there. Not too bad. All right. So today we are talking about Duterte and the new authoritarianism. This is a episode that we've been wanting to do for actually quite a long time. So we're really happy to have Nicole join us. Uh, what's given this, I guess, extra impetus is that Duterte is not the big baddie in the global scene anymore because he's now, I guess, been replaced by Bolsonaro uh, this past week. So we, we want to actually draw out a lot of these comparative issues. And so maybe that's a good place to get started. Uh, so Nicole, as a bit of a starter, we're going to get back into this into more depth later on. But Maybe as a started, just to paint the picture, how does Duterte compare to other authoritarian right-wing leaders around the world? Well, I think what's interesting about um, Duterte is he's actually a politician who first normalized the language of violence when it comes to his public pronouncements. And even more interesting is how he actually acted on these violent pronouncements. This is a man whose campaign promise is to say, I will kill all drug addicts. And he's actually acted on it. It's actual state policy to have a violent crackdown on drug addicts. Um, a lot of scholars actually start thinking about the unique characteristics of Duterte's so-called authoritarian tactics in one of Asia's oldest democracies. But I think one of the most insightful comments here that makes him a bit unique from other populist leaders is a comment made by Walden Bellio that he's really a fascist original, because usually when we talk about fascism, it's always within the language of creeping fascism. Mm. But what Duterte does is quite the reverse. He's actually done a fascist blitzkrieg right away. Um, he started with a vi very violent policy 
um, without have without having that creeping element. He just went into that really deep dive into these policies. So I think that kind of um, sets him apart because if we think about Orban, for example, there was still a moment that you know he was still trying to fit himself within the paradigm of liberal democracy right. until he yeah. suddenly declared that. Um, I'm building an illiberal democracy, if that's a paradox that actually makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, and we see this uh, with other uh, leaders again, like if you think of Trump, he will try to push the envelope and see where the boundaries are. Um, so that's in a way also a category of creeping um, fascism. Um, but for Duterte, it's the reverse. He begins with a violation of civil and political rights and then, um, sorry, he begins with indiscriminate repression and then it kind of goes the other way. So I think this is kind of an original, uh, I guess, ty tyrannical innovation that he put on the table. That's a spicy take. And I do want to come back to that. because that's And also particularly the question of fascism. Um, but let's let's move on to the drug war, because that's the other thing that most people will know about Duterte, will know about contemporary Philippines. Uh, he came in with this promise of blood right from the start. Uh, dehumanizing the perpetrators of the drug war, whether it's drug users and drug traffickers. So I guess, first off, how real is, um, you know, drug addiction and drug trafficking as a problem in the Philippines? Uh, and uh, what does this drug war represent? Because it seems a little bit quixotic to make that the core of your politics. Right. Well, the official statistics actually demonstrate that the Philippine that the rate of drug addiction in the Philippines is lower than the global average. And in fact, um, Duterte's own people, um, the Philippine Drug Enforcement Agency, um, did affirm that. But then, when Duterte um, got into power, suddenly the numbers um, got mixed up. Um, he would talk about inflated numbers of drug addicts ranging from three million to four million, and it's as if these numbers have no meaning. Um, but that's important in terms of creating this scenario of panic that the Philippines has become a narco state already. But I think um, this is an interesting topic because one of my findings in my own research when I talked to Duterte supporters was that the issue of drugs has been very personalized um, for the longest time. It has been an issue that has not been discussed in the public sphere. So, for example, it's hard not to be sympathetic when I talk to, for example, um, a woman in her 20s who works late night shift in a call center who would really change her route when she walks back home because she's afraid that the crackheads in the street corner will just start harassing her. I can't blame another respondent I talked to who keeps on making excuses for her neighbor because her neighbor's jaw was smashed by her husband. Um, because he was high on crystal meth and this person can't talk to me in our scheduled interview. So all of these narratives are already very present. Mm -hmm. And I think it was quite confronting to me when suddenly um, Duterte became a popular presidential candidate. I thought, why? Where did this drugs issue come from? I think it's manufactured. But when I look back at the transcripts that I had collected um, two, three years before Duterte became president, I realized, oh my God, I wasn't paying attention, that this has really caused so much anxiety to so many people, but no one really listened to them. But what Duterte did was to actually politicize a very private issue and basically 
divided a wedge, not just between addicts and non-addicts, but the bigger narrative here is he drove a wedge between the virtuous people, the people who kind of tried to do everything to earn a decent living versus the unscrupulous others who just try to get an easy life by selling drugs. Mm -hmm. So it's not a class war, although of course we can say that the war against drugs is a war against the poor because obviously most of the people who are killed in the drug war are from the poorest communities. We have yet to see a big um, boss of the drug syndicate to be put behind bars. Um, but nevertheless, it's not a class war when we talk to um, some respondents who think that, no, this is an issue between the good Filipinos and the bad Filipinos. And I, in a way, that's a rhetoric that's common for a lot of populist leaders, the way they drive the wedge between these immigrants who are freeloaders versus the good Americans who really tried to build the country. I have a follow-up question on that point. Um, so what is the relation between uh, this drug war and the structure of uh, drug trafficking and organized crime in the Philippines? Are these drug syndicates extremely powerful? Are they connected into the state? Has there been a purge in the state? Or is it something which is really just aimed against users and low-level dealers rather than the actual people who are making money, of, which I presume is mostly the crystal meth trade? Right. Well, it's hard to kind of give a definitive answer to that question, but there are indicative studies that demonstrate that the drug war is really part of a bigger, um, what they call shadow economies, economies of underground trade, um, arms dealings, drugs that fuel a lot of, let's say, um, powerful families in ungoverned contexts. I think one of the most interesting things about the Philippines is that despite the impression that Duterte is this very powerful president, the reality is you have local warlords posing as local government officials like mayors and governors who treat their own provinces as if it were their fiefdoms. And a big part of it is, again, being involved in the drug trade and the arms trade, having their own private armies um, in order to sustain themselves in power. Um, so I think you're right in pointing out that the drug trade is more complex. Um, it really is very much part of the of the fabric of society, whether we talk about politics or economy. And of course, we have to talk about the global character of this. So one of the main issues actually in the Philippines now is how come um, big time smugglers from China are not being arrested. Is it because Duterte has very close ties with Chinese investors and he's just willing to look at the other way so as not to jeopardize um, these investments? That's really interesting, Nicole. This is this is Philip. Um, just to I so it's fascinating to hear about how um, the issue about drugs is um, something that was present in many um, ordinary voters' minds. So I was wondering, you know, from the outside, like we say, we get this image of this incredibly kind of crass, offensive, deliberately kind of self-consciously offensive politician in Duterte, who's made all these, um, who's made, who's kind of normalized violence and unleashed the police and the drug war. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about how, what, if, P, if there feels to be a difference in, for ordinary voters in the Philippines under Duterte's rule, if they shift, um, if perhaps they feel uh, reassured by the new climate or if they feel afraid by the uh, how the police have been empowered. Could you just kind of paint a bit of a picture for us of what life is like for ordinary people now under Duterte? 
Right. I think that's a difficult question to answer in the sense that if we look at the surveys, then we get the impression that, yes, this man is a very popular president. But if we look at the the survey historically, it actually shows that any president in the Philippines, with one or two exceptions, always enjoyed this level of popularity rating two years into their presidency. So in that sense, Duterte is not that unique. If you compare him to his predecessor, the reformist, very um, uh, well-mannered Benigno Aquino, he actually has a similar um, popularity rating same time in his presidency. But you're right to point out that what sets the difference with Duterte is that despite everything he's done, he's still very popular. And so when I talk to um, poor communities as part of my uh, research, their responses are actually very varied. And I think this is an important insight when we talk about um, communities who support populist leaders, because there's this impression that if the leader is crass, then his supporters are crass. Well, not necessarily. Um, I worked with disaster-affected communities, and what they see with Duterte is, yes, they recognize he's a crass leader. They call him a badass. Some of them call him an idol, as they would call um, an action star, as they would call Keanu Reeves. For some reason, Keanu Reeves is so popular. (laughs) But that level of admiration when it comes to um, the celebrity who's a hero, who's out there to save the masses. Um, because he did give that impression when he helped out disaster-affected communities when he was still a mayor. He didn't have to do that. He was a mayor of a different city, but he helped them out quietly with no fanfare, with no selfies, with no entourage. And that really stuck um, to them, that there's this man who is a man of action. And for them, they're willing to just forego of the crass language because, you know, there are redeeming qualities of this man. But of course, that's not to say that that's not how a lot of people think. I've also... Um, talk to some uh, Bisaya. Bisaya is the language that Duterte speaks. Um, and he, al- he always uses that as an excuse that my language is like this because the Bisaya language is crass. But when I talk to the Bisaya, they would also reject that and say, no, actually, the most beautiful poetry, the most eloquent um, proverbs are, are actually from the Bisaya. So that can't be an excuse. So I guess um, what I'm saying here is that We cannot generalize um, what the popularity of the president means. Everyday life, the everyday moral calculations of a lot of Filipinos um, really vary. And I think ultimately it's a moral ethical decision that they make whether the language of this man can be excused for other redeeming qualities. It's fascinating. It really really is. And it really helps to kind of build up a picture for people who um, aren't familiar with the Philippines. Um, Just one more question question, quick question, is about uh, the institutional basis of his rule and its legal basis. So could you tell us a little bit about his political party, its current standing in Filipino politics, and also what the legal basis for the drug war is? Right. I think one thing we have to remember about Philippine politics is that political parties do not matter. Um, The wedge is always in relation to kinship ties or families. So it's very common if you're talking about a small city to ask not which party is in power, but which family is in power. So we often call elections as a mechanism to moderate inter-elite competition, right? And Duterte is not that different. His sons, two sons and a daughter, are running 
um, for different positions in Davao City where he used to be mayor. So I can, of course, give a characterization of Duterte's party. In fact, there are two parties supporting Duterte. One is PDP Laban. The other one is um, a local party based in Davao. And I think where the base is coming from um, is a regional base that a lot of his supporters are coming from southern Philippines in the island of Mindanao. And that is uh, the island where Duterte is from. And it's very symbolic um, to get that support from this island because this is a conflict-ridden um, island. And Duterte actually holds the promise of being the president who actually understands conflict in southern Philippines because he was able to make Davao um, or transform Davao City, where he was smeared as the murder capital to a peace and order paradise. At least that's been the narrative. So in a way, that has been the basis of his support, the promise of being able to deliver peace in the South, and his party really builds on that um, support base. Uh, in terms of the legal basis of the drug war, well, there have been, um, you know, it, it in a way, there have been legal um, memorandums that kind of give legal underpinning or legal legitimacy to his, um, to his campaign. I actually really like the term John Keane uses to describe this kind of strategy. He calls it new despotism. New despotism mm -hmm. is a kind of despotism that tries to um, couch itself with a legal language to kind of still pretend to be democratic and use the language of democracy to justify authoritarian measures. Uh, my colleague from Griffith University, Lee Morgan Besser, calls this sophisticated authoritarianism. It's not that crass. Mm -hmm. So in the drug war, for example, of course, there have been accusations that they're not following the rule of law, the police is just unhinged. But you can also see the police trying to justify why they had to shoot at suspects. They would say, well, they fought back. And they would even go to the extent of manufacturing evidence to show that they fought back, right? If this were an authoritarian regime, they'd be like, yeah, we don't care. They also show some indications of listening. So when there's a public outcry against, for example, shooting a teenager as part of the drug war, there were huge protests. Um, the government um, rethought the policy, paused it for a bit and then regroup. So I guess there's this sophisticated character of this regime as well, that it's not just your old fashioned um, retro type of authoritarian, but really a kind of authoritarian practice that also appropriates democratic mechanisms to re-legitimize its rule when it's being questioned. That's really evocative, Nicole. I'm actually kind of taking notes as we're going along here, noting down new despotism and sophisticated authoritarianism. Because I think this would uh, resonate with a lot of people observing the scene, maybe not just in the Philippines, but elsewhere um, in the countries that we've already mentioned. Um, I wanted to dive in a little bit maybe into Duterte's biographical history, at least in so far as we're talking about his mayorship um, of Davao, where he was a mayor for a long time. And he, his model for the whole country is this so-called Davao model, as my, as my understanding goes. Could you tell us a little bit about what that is? Right. And I think for this um, narrative to fly, I'd really have to blame the Philippines neighbor Singapore, right? I think a lot of Southeast Asian countries just look at Singapore as this model of look what happens when you give up your civil liberties Not and just political in Asia, rights. I have to say. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I mean, I've got friends from Australia who relocated to Singapore. And then when they come back to Australia, they're like, oh, take out my civil liberties. I just want <laughs> the trains to run on time. Because it's it a very, yeah. very 
That's it's terrible. a very compelling narrative, right? Yeah. So, so Davao is kind of pitched as, yeah, the Singapore of the Philippines. And like, like I mentioned earlier, um, the island of Mindanao has a stereotype of being a conflict-ridden area. This is a, an island where you have um, uh, secessionist groups, where there are a lot of terrorist groups as well, linked to global jihad. Just recently, uh, the city of Marawi, I think last year or, yeah, a year and a half ago, was actually had a similar situation with Mosul, where you have ISIS-inspired fighters taking over an actual functioning city, which led to five months of airstrikes between government forces and ISIS-inspired militants. And so um, so this has been, you know, um, the history of, of Southern Philippines. But there's this man who really was able to transform um, one city in Southern Philippines to become one of the most competitive um, cities economically um, in the Philippines. It has gotten rid of yeah petty criminals through the standard um, Duterte form of governance. And I think what's interesting about the Davao model is that um, they were able to use what they call vigilante groups or basically uh, paid paid killers to um, to get rid of yeah of drug addicts and petty criminals and get them you know and and have them killed or 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 intimidate them to leave the city and they're not actual um members of the police they're not associated to the state and so it's kind of hard to pin the the um the accountability to duterte there's plausible deniability there's this um very interesting clip that human rights watch always refers to when duterte said I am the death squad, that is true. And for some lawyers, they consider that as, oh, look at that, that is evidence we can use in international criminal courts that he admitted that he is the death squad. But this is where Duterte's rhetoric becomes interesting because he was actually, at least some of his um, close people, people who are close to him, the way they interpret that was, this is Duterte being sarcastic. I'm the death squad, come on, find evidence that links me to the death squad. And you can't take, you take can't him find... seriously, not literally, as the saying goes now. It, it, exactly. Right. And the same. Yeah. The same expression they use for Trump. Um, but but that, that's the point. Right. Um, it's hard to pin uh, accountability on Duterte, but he was able to get away with it. So when these killings happen in Davao, the police's role is to just not show up or just not show up in time to arrest any of the killers. Um, and I think. The difference now when you scale up that model to the Philippines is that you can only hire so much, so many death squads, right? And this is why the police as an institution has to be part of the drug war and be at the forefront of this. So now this is an official police um, operation, although we still see some vigilante killings. But yeah, so that's in a way um, the, the story of Davao. And this is not to say there are no real gains in Duterte's rule in Davao. They're very proud that they've cut red tape, they've cut bureaucracy. But the other side of the story is that, well, data also shows that Davao is not really drug free, that there is still a huge drug problem in Davao, even now that it's being ruled um, by his daughter, uh, Sara Duterte, who's now the mayor of Davao, who replaced um, her father. Um, I'm just going to jump in here. Uh, I have a couple questions more about this Davao model. Um, is there a specific link between this sort of like drug war, maybe a social cleansing and the particular sort of economic model adopted in Davao. Because it's my understanding that part of uh, the appeal of Duterte is that he's been quite willing to sort of position himself on the left at times, you know, like critique uh, American imperialism or corporate interests, or even in some cases actually break with social conservatism. 
Right. Um, yes, that's another peculiarity of the Philippines. Aside from the Communist Party of the Philippines, there's really no discernible ideological position of any politician. So in a way, a lot of them are pragmatists. And Duterte really is the um, is the quintessential um, pragmatist. So you're right. It's hard to pin his political positions. On one hand, he will say that he actually understands the left. In fact, he invited some members of the Philippine left to be part of his cabinet, only to um, not be confirmed by the Commission on Appointments later on. But that's a different story. Um, but on the other hand, if you look at Duterte's economic team, these are your standard neoliberal um, professors of economics um, who implement his economic policy. So there's really, like when we look at the actual policy, there's really no major difference um, from, previous, uh, from previous governments. But what I think is interesting with the Davao model is when I was talking to some Davao businessmen about how they feel about this, the way they explained it is, well, you know, we're just willing to look the other way. We're just more than happy to be able to get our business permit very quickly. If we did this in another Philippine city, it will take six months. If, if we build our business in Davao, we get our permit in a month, which means a lot, right? If you're a businessman, if you're, you know, if you're not a big multinational company, but you're, you're, you're a small business owner, that really, that really means a lot. And the idea is that there are trade-offs. You're, you just have to be willing to look the other way. And we see that on the national level as well. So when you have the head of the Philippine Chamber of Commerce and Industry saying that, um, the casualties in the drug war is a necessary evil, then, you know, this is turning a blind eye, just looking the other way. Absolutely. So to that extent, I think there is complicity, there is complicity to the drug war. But having said that, I always make a point in saying, but guys, the Philippines is not an exotic case, right? If we ask ourselves, why am I not donating one third of my salary to UNHCR or UNICEF? I can actually do something about global hunger. Why am I not doing anything about it? The polar ice caps are melting. Why are we not doing anything about it? So in a way, you know, this is not so exotic. Um, we know that the world is coming to an end, but we need to be complicit to some of these um, problems because life has to go on, right? So I'm not, I try not to be super judgmental as well um, when people justify why they look the other way. We have to unpack what it is that makes them think it's okay. Absolutely. I think it's important to understand why someone who we might find despicable holds some appeal amongst uh, a mass of people. As to this question of a mass of people, I wanted to ask who is his base? What is Duterte's base? Who voted for him? Um, I think the usual perspective, uh, certainly the kind of Western perspective, whenever a, a kind of strong man rises up, is that, oh, this is just the revolt of the Lumpens. But it seems that his base is much more amongst the new middle class. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Um, when we look at uh, polling data, when uh, he was still running for president, the first socioeconomic class that actually uh, threw their support behind Duterte is, you're right, these are the new middle classes. Uh, the poorest socioeconomic class actually either supported the other populist candidate, but populist in the traditional sense, like I'll give you extended welfare benefits, uh, let's yeah. say for senior citizens or something. Um but, but but yeah, that's not the initial base that Duterte had. And one explanation uh, put forward by some academics is that it's because in the previous um, regime, most of the economic benefits 
either trickled down to the top 40 families in the Philippines that enjoyed unprecedented economic growth. Can you believe that? Only 40 families really made money out of the 8% economic growth. And the poorest communities who actually received conditional cash transfer. So I've, I've witnessed this in my respondents. Like they hold their ATM cards um, they guard it with their lives because they know that on this particular date, they have to go to the bank and then cash your conditional cash transfer, uh, which matters because it used to be the case that they have to plead to the mayor or to the counselor or, you know, find different networks to get the benefits that they deserve. So in a way, um, there have been programs that benefited the poor, but it's the middle class that really did not benefit from that economic growth. These are people who are stuck in traffic, stuck in very ugly airports, uh, stuck in trains that are not functioning. Um, So it's a lot of frustration. It's a lot of unarticulated frustration. And so when you have a presidential candidate who just says, motherfucker, I will fix this, I Mm -hmm. personally would say, yeah, please do it, damn it. He does like to preface preface things with motherfucker, which is a good kind of lexical way of structuring your sentence, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And it has been a struggle for me when I read proofs of articles I write, because I have to think about, are they two words or are they just one word? I mean, what's the correct spelling? <laughs> so apparently my editor said it's just one word for future reference. <laughs> service announcement. Um, but anyway, the, yeah, that's he, um, he, he articulates something visceral that really speaks um, to the middle classes. Uh, That's why his first uh, supporters are from that class. But I think it's also not correct to limit it to that narrative. Uh, A while ago, I did mention his regional base, which is coming from Mindanao. And that is a very important um, voting block, I think. The first time I realized that this man might actually be president was when I was in Marawi, the city I talked to you uh, about a while ago, the one that was captured by ISIS militants. Uh, I was there in January 2016. I was talking to um, young college students. A lot of them are conservative Muslims. Why they like Duterte? And this man makes jokes about women all the time. He's misogynistic. He's crass. He curses a lot. I understand he also likes to make fun of God. He likes him well, not Allah, but you know, just the Pope. Um, but anyway, yeah, it was very, it was very um, interesting for me why these conservative young Muslims would like this man to be president, and their answer is, well, he gets us right. Um, he was able to again um, change Davao. I think he gets the rest of Mindanao. It's about time that we put someone from here um, to Imperial Manila and start fixing things because you idiots from Manila know nothing, right? So I think that's a very compelling narrative also. There's a regional factor um, to his popularity, which is very symbolic because this has been a region that has been underrepresented uh, for a very long time. So let me pick you up on what fixing things might mean, at least in political terms uh, rather than economic terms. So I guess to what extent does his appeal rest on breaking with the kind of standard business as usual politics or with machine politics? Um, Does his rule represent a challenge to clientelistic practices in the Philippines? Uh, Is he able to break with that if that's what he proposes? No, really, not not at all. Um, During the campaign, there was, um, well, I have also observed this myself, there is a legitimate observation that his campaign is funded by ordinary people. And I did I did witness this. I, I went to our remittance centers and saw um, young 
like I think they're in their 20s, young teenagers getting remittance money from relatives from Saudi Arabia to print a poster that says, our family supports Duterte, right? And this is really crucial at that time because remittances during March is usually used for graduation season, you know, to buy your clothes, to have a party, whatever. But now they're spending it to print a poster for Duterte. So that's a very compelling narrative that people are actually willing to use their own money to support a candidate, whereas before people are actually paid to wear a T-shirt saying that they support this candidate. Yeah. So to me, that was very moving. And that was a popular narrative um, at that time. But now it's starting to come out that Duterte is actually backed by elites that are also from southern Philippines. So there are these very old names that have, you know, have wealth way back from the Spanish colonial period and new elites as well who benefited um, from Duterte's rule. So also quite questionable is Duterte's link uh, to the Marcoses, who obviously are the family members of the former dictator. Um, so that's also coming out now. So um, yeah, and when I looked at sample ballots, I don't know if this travels to other contexts, but before elections, people are given a sample ballot that shows them which boxes to shade and they can bring it with them in the polling precinct. Um, and yeah, Duterte's name was in that sample ballot, right? Wow. Um, and it close in that sample ballot is cash. So he's not definitely um, excused from machine politics, clientelism, vote buying, um, and yeah, so I don't think um, his appeal is a radical is a radical break from that. If anything, he's just able to successfully tap on different sources of of um, campaign income. Um, if I could just in jump in here, um, Sorry, just quickly, Nicole, uh, if you you're talking about his connection to old elites, um, powerful landed interests, and fa old families, and so on, um, if this. Ex if this exposure becomes more widely known, do you think that's a potential political weakness if he's seen to be, if it damages his credibility as somebody who poses as being outside the elite? Right. Yeah, that's that's a tough one, right? Because there have been a lot of attempts by opposition figures, um, both elected and activist groups, to expose his corruption scandals. But it hasn't made a dent. And I think part of the reason for this is that he performs his simplicity really, really well. Like this is a man who really shuns formality. He portrays himself as someone who um, eats dried fish during cabinet meetings. So his, yeah, his man of the people image is so performative. But let's not forget that, you know, he's not poor. He, he uh, Jonathan Miller's book, uh, Duterte Harry, Fire and Fury in the Philippines, actually has a very good a portrait of Duterte's childhood and his tough guy image is something that he developed by hanging out with his bodyguards when he was a teenager, right? So there's definitely no man of the people angle um, to Duterte. But that narrative of Duterte being a simple man, um, and you, you see this with his lifestyle, uh, kind of um, is not consistent with corruption allegations. But that said, it's not as if there is no evidence that there are lots of shady deals going on in his regime. So my colleague Kenneth Cardenas wrote a piece for um, the Philippine Center for Investigative Journalism. He looked at the contractors that bagged contracts um, for Duterte's big ticket items. And let's not forget that the main policy, economic policy of the Duterte regime is elegantly called build, 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 right? So very, very eloquent. Um, and the idea is they want to 
usher in a golden age of infrastructure in the Philippines, and that will um, jumpstart economic development, you know, building bridges, building airports, um, building seaports. But when you look at the contractors that actually bag these contracts, they are either contractors blacklisted by the World Bank for anomalous construction projects elsewhere, um, and others are companies that we've never heard of before. So there is evidence that we can actually question the track record of these new elites that benefit um, from Duterte's rule. But how that connects to the people might be a bit um, of a problem because it's not directly associated to Duterte the man, right? It could be very much a structural issue of, yeah, the, the, just the general state of corruption in the Philippines. Um, I, I also understand that um, Duterte, like a lot of these other authoritarian leaders, has uh, the presence of his family in politics. As you mentioned before, his daughter is the mayor of this city he formerly governed. And I also understand uh, he has a kind of embarrassing son who may or may not be involved in uh, some illicit activities. Um, is like the sort of family style politics a thing that you can really associate with him too? Yes, he's, he very much benefits from that family style politics. But I think a lot of people are just willing to, again, um, look the other way or be tolerant about it, right? Because this is, how do you say that? It's not new. It's not surprising. We've heard this before. So even if we hear a lot of accusations about his own kids being involved in drug smuggling operations, um, it doesn't. It doesn't really. It doesn't really stick. And even Duterte makes fun of his own children in his speeches. So in a way, there's also this deniability. I, that's like better he than, would shame them. Yeah. I mean, that's better than Bolsonaro or Trump. I have to say. <laughs> yeah. Why did Trump ever embarrass Eric or something? <laughs> Only, only in private. <laughs> yes, in SNL, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Um, let me ask you about the development model, because I think when we talk about these new authoritarians, and we're talking about Duterte under that umbrella, there's quite a variance in terms of their political economic program. Uh, Duterte seems to be the most developmentalist of the lot of them. Um, I don't know if you'd agree with that statement, but uh, I think we do need to talk a little bit about this fact that he does seem to be much more of a national developmentalist than, um, you know, than Bolsonaro for that matter. Ah, I'm not sure about what what is Bolsonaro's context then? Is he more liberal, right? That's well, why I mean, some a, of the financial long... papers endorsed him too. Yes, that's right. I mean, he's a lo he, long-term sort of nationalist, but hasn't, hasn't really put forward a particular economic program, I mean, over the course of his time in Congress. <laughs> but uh, but now, recently, he's a, he's a more recent convert to, to very hardcore neoliberal economics, and his economic advisor is uh, one of the most extreme Chicago boys out there uh, uh, who promises right, to privatize <laughs> everything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, He even worked for um, Pinochet. All right, they are so back. Wow, okay. Um, yeah, Duterte is kind of, um, yeah, the economic policy is interesting in the sense that the whole idea is to uh, spread the wealth throughout the country. So it's it's very much anchored on his anti-imperial Manila sentiment, which again resonates to, to areas outside Manila. So this is why federalism, for example, is one of his main um, policy proposals, which really isn't going anywhere at this point. But the idea is, yeah, to redistribute, redistribute wealth away from the capital. And part of the policy that does that are the infrastructure projects I mentioned a while ago, high-speed rail, bridges, airports, 
Um, some of them are funded by loans. Some of them are funded by uh, what they call the Swiss Swiss challenge type procurement. So getting unsolicited bids um, from foreign contractors. Um, so I guess to that extent, you can call that uh, developmentalist. But as far as questioning the Philippines' link to the global political economy, then I don't really see that much difference, mm -hmm. right? I mean, there are some tokenistic, uh, maybe not tokenistic, that's quite unfair, but there's really no, for example, a major policy against labor exportation. Uh, the Philippines, one of the Philippines' biggest industries is labor, sending mm -hmm. people abroad. And I guess I'm part of that too, right? Because I'm a migrant worker. Um, but yeah, he would do these very, I guess, meaningful ways to protect, let's say, distressed Filipino workers in Saudi Arabia and bring them back home. And, you know, it looks like a good victory of the nation looking after their people abroad. But really, it doesn't address the underlying reasons why the Philippines is very much part in the global political economy this, in the way that it is part of um, the system now. Uh, so yeah, there has been no major pivot. So I would still characterize um, the Philippine economic system is very, yeah, still family driven, still very much concentrated on the hands of a few. Um, and I don't think that, yeah, this, this regime is doing anything radical to dismantle, to dismantle those structures. I mean, that's quite interesting, interesting to me, because uh, over the course of the last few years, uh, since he took power, I've uh, encountered a, a weirdly Significant, um, larger number than I expected of like American leftists and international leftists who might like, oh no, he's killing people. That might be horrible, but at least he's an anti-imperialist or like basically giving, he's a natural development eventualist. The Americans don't like him because he's standing up for his country, really sort of repeating sort of like this really crude, uh, I think kind of comes probably from their associations with some of the Maoist parties in the mm. Philippines. But like, this is some sort of like thing that you would definitely encounter on the left and it doesn't sound accurate at all. No, it doesn't. I mean, I mean, I personally really, you know, felt entertained when Duterte was really throwing shade at the American colonial history. Like, you know, he was making, he was questioning historical injustice from the American period. And I thought, yeah, totally. Or even when, you know, even these, um, his tirades against foreign leaders that meddle in the drug war, a part of me actually thinks, yeah, what the hell do they care? I mean, America hasn't gotten its <laughs> drug war policy in order in order either, right? So this is this is where the appeal lies. He he really taps on on in the injured ego of a lot of Filipinos who probably think that why are you meddling with our country? But I think what's unfair about that assessment that you know he rhetorically he speaks up against the US is he does it when it's convenient. I mean, let's not forget that this is the same man who sang a romantic ballad to Donald Trump during the ASEAN summit, right? <laughs> uh, and he likes Trump because Trump doesn't meddle. So I think his anti-foreign sentiment only goes as far as saying, don't meddle with my drug policy, don't question my human rights violations. But if they just let him do his thing, then he, he doesn't care. But there's even a bigger, longer history here that we can establish in relation to Duterte's human rights violations in the Americans. If we look up, if we look at the patterns of torture and extortion that the police 
can actually do now, this is very much rooted in the American colonial period when they used the Philippines as a laboratory for their torture techniques, right? So there is this narrative of continuity that the very security sector that Duterte is using to kill his own people is the same security sector trained by the Americans to not get things in order. So Mm -hmm. I think it's quite unfair to, to say we can just, yeah... Um, agree that the bigger picture here is you have this nationalist man willing to speak up against the U.S. I think he does does he just does it when it's comfortable. Sure. Um, you mentioned history a second ago, and I did wanted to, I did want to come on to that and place Duterte within the context of a of a longer Filipino history. Uh, there seems a tendency, and I guess this is something which doesn't just apply to the Philippines, but to relitigate history in. Uh, new democracies, countries that have come out of a dictatorship in the past 30-odd years. Um, this is definitely the case in Brazil, which is something that's very present in my mind. Um, so I guess my question is, regarding the kind of ni- post-1986 redemocratization settlement in the Philippines, um, t- how much appeal does that have? Um, he angered a lot of people, um, kind of saying, being a little bit more open and appreciative to the Marcos regime. Um, Is there a desire to return to that at all from a certain section of Filipino society? How does he relate to that? Just if I can just, sorry, if this is Philip, if I can just add to that, the base, just do people feel fed up after 30 years of democratic compromises and um, aspirations that have not been realized? Yeah, definitely. The sense of being fed up is very much um, felt. There has been serious questioning about what precise gains has democracy actually brought to the Philippines. And the return of the Marcoses is actually interesting because, as a colleague, uh, Cleaver Guelas actually argues, no, the Marcos aren't back. They never really left. I mean, unlike other uh, post-authoritarian countries that actually litigated or had some form of truth and reconciliation commissions or justice commissions that investigates the atrocities of military regimes, the Philippines didn't really, really have that. Um, yeah, assets of the Marcoses were um, were relinquished. Um, uh, they were convicted in some plunder cases, or yeah, some yeah, some they were convicted in some courts for corruption. So that's been settled. Um, but really, they they never they never really left with with or without Duterte. I think the Marcuses are still very much part of the public scene. I mean, I made it my personal crusade that every time Aimee Marcos graces the cover of a fashion magazine in the Philippines, I would grab that magazine and put that to the horror section of the bookstore. <laughs> I mean, that's where it freaking belongs, right? Yeah. But that's always been the case. They have been standard features of lifestyle programs. They have been so glamorized. The grandchildren that studied in the LSE are very much part of the very cool hipster scene of Manila. I mean, come on. The Marcoses have always been there. And what Duterte did is to actually just let them, you know, appear again on the national scene, appear with the president on national speeches, um, profess um, loyalty to to the Marcus to the Marcuses by giving concessions, like for example, allowing the burial of the late dictator in the cemetery of heroes. So yeah, that's that's really a huge concession. But I think if there is one point of hope that we can um, focus on here, it's really that if you look at the surveys, the people who really feel nostalgic about the martial law are older people. The millennials actually don't like the return of the dictatorship. The millennials actually don't like 
um, or don't, yeah, don't don't like uh, the Marcoses that much. So I think, and if you looked at the protests against the Marcos burial, these are very young, woke um, millennials who are very creative in expressing um, their discontent. So uh, I would say that there's still a, a very dynamic and vigorous contestation about what the legacy of the dictatorship is. Um, I wouldn't just say that, you know, Duterte just emboldened the Marcoses to be back in power because the pushback is very strong. So there is somewhere in the world where woke millennials are actually doing something right. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. But of course, that's just not unique to the Philippines, right? I mean, Women's March in the US, for example, is really very much a product of woke millennials as well. Um, so, yeah, um, people who support um, uh, the who lend their voices to the oppressed uh, Rohingya refugees are also young Burmese activists. So, you know, there, there there is a lot of hope elsewhere in the world. I'm um, just speaking on the sort of millennial question. Isn't there also a degree that sort of like the other side of like the millennial, woke millennials is normally we say the alt-right millennials or sort of like the sort of neo-reactionaries. Isn't there sort of like an element of like young men, as you mentioned earlier, in that uh, when you were citing the Muslim students in uh, his region, mm -hmm. also like really are behind this guy. He's like a macho dude. He says stuff that we like. He's a badass. And there's kind of like uh, sort of legions of pro-Duterte trolls out there on the internet who are quite well organized. Right. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I don't think there, I, I haven't observed a parallelism between, yeah, the alt-right, um, injured white male ego counterpart mm -hmm. um, to the Philippines. Um, if anything, the role that he the, the role that he he performs, Duterte performs, is the drunk uncle. Uh, this is usually ah. this is my favorite this is my mm -hmm. favorite metaphor in populism studies. Like the populist is that drunk uncle who attends a party, probably hits on the host, maybe gets a little bit too drunk, makes everybody uncomfortable. Um, but he's familiar, right? He's the drunk uncle that everybody knows. So in a way, I think when I um, listen to how these, you know, macho young men in the Philippines look at Duterte, they, they feel like, yeah, he's just one of those dudes. Maybe for some, he's an idol. Maybe for others, they think that he's a bit too crass. But it don't, it, I don't think he necessarily emboldens um, that kind of language to, to think that, you know, it's, it's, so, it's so normal. Um, of course, you can have all of these um, Facebook and Twitter memes about or, or stories about how some men are just much worse now because Duterte made them that way. But, you know, these are anecdotes. I think when, I, at least in my research, when I really do a deep dive of how people appreciate or assess the kind of language he has, I also hear a lot of people who are just like, yeah, whatever, he's just pretending to be badass. Let's assess him based on his actions. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of people are willing to um, ignore the crass language because they're counting on the action, right? So he will be assessed based on what he can do rather than what he says. I mean, there's also this sort of like, like paradox, and I'm thinking about Bolsonaro in this case with this thing about actions, is that even when he does what he says, in this case, uh, kill a lot of people, he's, it's still like there's some distance between what he's saying and his actions. And there's a sort of like era, like he's this sort of floating lack of accountability for what he's doing. But more specifically, I want to ask another question, uh, which is basically, uh, what is, is there resistance to his rule? Is there a organized left resistance? Is there some sort of ability to hold him accountable? 
through, uh, I guess, the fashionable term of yore was civil society, but I always hated that term. But through <laughs> like unions, uh, religious groups, uh, student groups. Yeah, definitely. Um, I remember that on the first year of Duterte's State of the Nation address, so it's similar to the U.S. State of the of the Union address. Um, on his first speech, the question was, where will the protesters be? It, at that time, uh, the left was still allied to Duterte. We were asking the question of who will burn Duterte's effigy, because it has been an event, a ritual every year, you know, the creative effigy that the left will burn. Um, and so we kind of missed that. On his first year in office, the left was even invited inside the presidential palace to have a chat with the president. And that was actually pretty symbolic. You have indigenous people having a direct line to the president. Um, but yeah, since that relationship soured, broke down, the left is very much at just, the forefront. Just, just quickly, what? how did that relationship sour and break down? Well, um, the peace talks that they have uh, with the left is actually breaking down. There are a lot of irreconcilable differences. Um, the people that he assigned in cabinet were not confirmed by the Senate. They just didn't get enough votes. So, And he started firing um, some of them for really strange reasons, um, which he normally does to some people um, anyway. So now that there's this moment where you're, well, we call the usual suspects of activists, right, are just all out campaigning um, for Duterte, I think things are um, starting to change in the sense that resistance is now very much part um, of the agenda. But I think uh, what's interesting about the nature of resistance against Duterte now are the more creative forms of resistance, again, uh, that we see from the woke millennials. So for example, we see spoken word poetry, uh, rap music produced that criticize the drug war, and it's very emotional. Uh, we see theaters, plays that try not to criticize Duterte, but to um, bring to life the experiences of people who experience the drug war uh, firsthand. Um, my favorite, actually, is a sticker that you can download online, and you're meant to stick it on a urinal, the campaign being piss at the dictatorship, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's very clever. And if we can do a collective effort in, in printing Erdogan, Orban, Trump stickers and post them in urinals, then that's a, you know, a fantastic movement, global movement to piss at the dictatorship. Um, yeah, so I think there is, there is increasing space um, against resistance uh, or yeah, space for resistance um, against Duterte's rule. Uh, they're becoming very creative, very engaging. Um, but the question I always get asked is, will you see a large-scale protest that we've seen in, seen in 86 and 2001 that actually have taken presidents out of power? I think that will be quite hard because in a way, um, the nature of protests has changed. And also, I think it's important to remember that um, taking out presidents in that manner didn't serve the country well um, either. There's a long and complicated history to that, but I think there's not an appetite to take out presidents through extra constitutional means again. And a lot of people are also gearing their energy towards electoral processes. So in the 2000, what is next year, 2019, it would be the midterm elections. And so we see children of old activists in 86 now running for office 
um, to actually confront, for example, Aimee Marcos, who's also running for Senate. So in a way, there's this rematch of dictators' children and activists' children um, fighting it out in the electoral arena. So that's also interesting to, um, to, to monitor. It's funny how we see these past battles fought out again on kind of new terrain. Um, I, to sort of wrap things up, I do want to return to where we started, uh, which is how do we place Duterte in the global moment, in the global conjuncture? Uh, and do you buy the idea that there's a global populist, authoritarian, far right wave, depending on how you characterize it? Is there something that is there a unifying factor? I mean, just from, from my own point. Um, on my own thinking and researching and writing about these issues, I think the one thing that strikes me as being the one unifying factor is language, that the mm-hmm. key populist praxis and universal source of appeal for populists is language, direct, unvarnished, brutal, gaff-prone discourse. And that's something that Duterte exemplifies very well. Trump does. It's part of Bolsonaro's appeal. Um is there anything more to it than this? Is, it, is there any other thing that you think in your research that can tie together figures as different as Duterte or Putin or Erdogan or Orban or mm-hmm. Bolsonaro? Yeah, I'm actually, I always find this question difficult to answer. And I'm always hesitant to make such claim that this is a global wave of populism, far right wave. Um, I think... I'm hesitant to make such claims simply because I don't know enough. I mean, it depends who's part of the global that we are talking about here, because I think there's no doubt this is an issue because Trump is president, Brexit happened, white supremacist rhetoric is increasingly normalized in Europe. But that's not the world, right? I mean, this has been a constant feature of politics when we think of Berlusconi or Chavez or some crass African dictator. I mean, so a part of me actually thinks are we just being super um, ethnocentric here when we talk about, oh, it's the global wave because it affects us. But when it affected other societies, we really didn't care. Absolutely. Yeah. So so that's, I think, my, my general, I guess, rant <laughs> in that in that context. But I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not talking as, a, as an academic now, but a speculative citizen <laughs> observer of politics. I think in as much as we focus on these moral panics about, you know, the very crass political leaders of the world. I also, I mean, my, my training is in ethnography, so I do a deep dive in communities. And my lesson there is there's a good reason to celebrate democratic gains and micro-political achievements uh, that we see in communities in sub-national levels. We can see a lot of democratic experiments and democratic innovations, whether we're talking about Jacinda Ardern's New Zealand or Justin Trudeau's Canada, or even maybe Evo Morales' Bolivia, right? Mm. I mean, there are a lot of modest micro-political achievements that we can celebrate because I think, yeah, democracy works best with down-to-earth down-to-earth methods with incremental effects so in as much as there's a lot of panic at the top maybe there's a lot of reason to celebrate at the bottom nicole i think that's a brilliant place to leave it thank you very much that was incredibly engaging and i've got a whole page of notes that i was taking as we were going along (laughs) all right that's it for now next episode's coming up are Alex Gurevich on Douchebag Entrepreneurs, Ishay Landa on The Apprentice's Sorcerer, and Will Davis on Nervous States. Catch you later. Bye-bye.